Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to come uh, as your church, uh, as the body of your Son. Father, that we can gather together freely. We can gather together uh, with great anticipation. We can gather together and look at your word. Father, we don't have anything to fear in the blessings that you have given us. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at your word today, particularly the journey that we're going to be taking across some of the scriptures, uh, that you would help awaken in us a awe and reverence for who you are. Father, for the words that you have given by the prophets, by the apostles, and by your Son. Father, that we will see it in a new light this Christmas as we begin a new uh, adventure together this month. We ask that you would be with us, that you would guide us with your sovereign hand through these texts. Father, that we would accurately and rightly see you. And even more so that it would cause our hearts to change. And Father, that we would see you and savor you for who you are. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm excited to kick off a new series for us. I know you're probably tired of hopping around and we got some reprieve uh, from that in Ruth. That was nice. Uh, but over the next couple of weeks, we'll be jumping around a little bit some more prior to the new year. But we're kicking off a new uh, series, one that I kind of got to design. So if it stinks, I'm sorry. Well, it was my doing. Um, but uh, that's what we're kicking off today. The title of our series is Great Expectations. And the title of the sermon today particularly is The Paradox of Christmas. The Paradox of Christmas. So to kick off with this idea of great expectations, where are we dropping in? Where are we going this month? Well, you know, <laughs> it's Christmas. It's December 2nd. There's a certain amount of tokenism, the token questions that I have to ask, right, and to kick off the holiday season as we begin. And I want to do that. I mean, we often ask questions like, who's Jesus or who's the baby to you? These are important questions, really, that we should ask more often, but certainly when it comes to Christmas. Just in the same way that when we get into the Easter season in the spring, so what does the cross mean to you? These kinds of questions. I want to take a little bit different picture to that. Not so much what, what does this mean to you, but more of a what are you looking for? My question today is really what are you expecting? What are you expecting this month? So idea of great expectations, what are you actually expecting this month? What does not just Christmas mean, but what is it going to be? What's it going to be this year for you? You see, these other questions that we typically ask are super important, but I think that we have a problem and it's twofold in nature. One is simply that we just can't slow down. We just can't. We cannot slow down. And if, if we could just slow down for a moment today, I think I'd actually consider that a win. <laughs> I would be happy. But the problem is, is because of this first problem of us not being able to slow down in life and living, whatever it may be, because of this, we miss the gravity of what we're experiencing. We miss the weightiness or the gravity of what we are experiencing day by day, moment by moment. And I think that these two things reveal everything, really. I think it just shows us everything that we need to know. We are so consumed with our own kingdoms, and I'm not even willing to say that it's purely selfish. I think there's a lot of things that we do that are even good. 
But we're so consumed with our kingdoms that we just get lost and often reacting. It's like we're always on defense. And so rather than walking in the works that are prepared for us, or pursuing righteousness, or running the race as the Scriptures would call it in each of these cases, we end up instead being hindered. We are stumbling, we're shackled, we're enslaved. Also language that the Scriptures use. And so we get lost in the trivial as we ended last week. We get lost in the trivial, just responding and reacting to what's going on rather than pursuing, rather than being the one on the move. And so we miss the gravity of what is happening all around us. And you ask, well, what is happening? What am I missing? What are you trying to say that I don't see? Well, it's simply this. The kingdom is here. Emmanuel. God with us. He has come. He's, he's here. That is the good news. That is the big deal. That God stepped out of eternity into time, into flesh, emptying himself and became like us, the God-man. Emmanuel is here. And so I respond, what else did you expect? What else are you looking for? What else are you thinking that you're missing? When I look at my life, there's a lot that I think that I'm missing out on. Particularly back in high school, there was so much that I thought I was missing out on, and I must have it for myself. I must get it now. And trust me, I'm a comfort idol. I'm an expert at this. If it's good, I want it. Clean. I want it all, right? Yeah. I can resonate with that. There's a lot that I feel like I miss out on in life. But really, the great good news is that Emmanuel has come. He's here. And so again, what are you, I ask, what are you expecting this month? Because we should be a people of great expectations, but too often we find ourselves in living a life of reacting and having just our expectations missed all the time and living a life where our expectations of what God is and what he is doing are so low that it's offensive to him. Two books that I would like to reference. The one is on the nose, but I feel like Tiffany is the only one that may have read it. Has anyone read Great Expectations by Charles Dickens? Hayden? Two, three, okay, a few. How about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? All right, we've seen the movie at least. I'll take that one. We're going to go with that. <laughs> I think there's a lot more good examples in Great Expectations. But imagine, if you will, Lucy, right, walking through the wardrobe for the very first time, and where, who does she encounter? Mr. Tumnus, right, at the lantern. What do you do? Half goat, half man. What are your expectations in that moment? Right? Okay. We walk into C.S. Lewis's world is going, this is normal. Of course it's a half goat, half man. She's in another world. What else do you expect? I don't expect a half goat, half man is what I do not expect. You, you, you walk into this new world and you see her just very calmly <laughs> accept that this is just strange. But it's different. And it's Okay. And it's something to explore and know. Her expectations are massive, and rightly so, in this great, beautiful, new world where you're going to have a talking lion coming around soon, right? And we walk into that scenario, and I think the book particularly makes a good note of this as it talks about the way that adults respond to life, is that we walk into that and we probably don't even see Mr. Tumnus. Our expectations are so low of the supernatural and what we should expect. We walk through a wardrobe into a winter wonderland and we're like someone should patch this hole right 
Our expectations of life are so low. And the ones that we do have that are often good and great turn out to be based on lies. In the book, Great Expectations, the main character desires to go to London and thinks that the streets are paved with gold and is excited to get to this wonderland destination. And he gets there and he finds out that it's an infested rat hole. It's not what he thought it would be. He's chasing riches all of his life, and he, in fact, gets some, but it comes from a donor that he doesn't particularly care for. It takes him a long time to actually get with the lady that he would like to spend his life with, and it doesn't look the way that it should. We have expectations that aren't right. We have expectations that are dismal. We have not great expectations. And it's these wrong or these poor expectations that we need to identify and correct. You see, for many this month, their expectations are far too low. For others, they hope to experience a magic in the air that will somehow wash away every wrong. There is something about Christmas that everyone thinks a little bit of fairy dust is sprinkled out over the world. And if we can just have the right hallmark experience, if we can just have the right conversation, if we could just have this relationship, if we could just drive and see the lights, if we could just go and get a real tree, if we could just have everyone over for dinner, if we could just, if we could just, if we could just, then everything will be okay. And this magic is supposed to take root. And so I ask you, what would make this month the best ever? I have fond memories of Christmas as a kid. There's a lot of traditions that I like, a lot of things that I enjoy in that. And so my question is, particularly for you adults, what would make this the best Christmas ever? What would it take? Getting all the gifts that we want, having all of our family around, actually getting some real rest on our days off. For Greg, maybe, seeing the end of the semester. <laughs> Excited to finish school. And so my question then, I guess, is this. What if this month instead was just a turning point? What if it was a turning point, a turning point in your life? Allow me to get all spiritual for a second and, uh, and hope that one sermon could actually change your life. <laughs> what if this month you slowed down for a second and maybe for the first time you felt the gravity of the Jesus that you follow? and what he means, and what he has called you. You, your individual soul, what, if, what he has called you to. A guy can hope, right? <laughs> so what expectation, what turning point am I talking about? Well, for many, the expectation of Christmas brings all the feel-goods that I talked about earlier, and you can, you can really feel it. But the thing is, is that once the 25th has come and gone, and the spectacle of New Year's has passed, you're left with... January. <laughs> You're left with January. Cold, lights turned off, dark at 3 p.m., dreary, miserable January, right? It's a good thing we had December. We would never make it through January, right? And so Christmas is this magical time of year where everyone is just good. I mean, for a brief time of year, everything is good. We have a culture that engorges itself on as much good as it can. And again, I'm an expert on the good. But they and we miss the meaning of the baby. The angels proclaimed peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. But what does the baby mean? What do you expect from Jesus? Because I'm afraid it's all the wrong things. And there's a man that I want to introduce you to today, and his expectations were challenged. Let's walk with him in Matthew 3. We've already read it with Brian. I first want you to see today's point is one long sentence, and we're going to go somewhere together. The first thing is that Christmas demands repentance. 
Christmas demands repentance. Merry Christmas. We have the prophecies of John the Baptist. In chapter 3, 1 through 12, John gets after it. I really enjoy the writings of J.C. Ryle. Uh, for those of you with older children, I would highly encourage you to get um, his uh, comments, Terry's, basically his comments on the Gospels. Um, they're fantastic, just devotional material for your family worship. I am excited to use those one day with mine. But what he writes on this particular passage is just really simple and helpful. He says this, he just says, John spoke plainly. John spoke plainly. He spoke plainly about sin. He spoke plainly about our Lord Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the awful danger of the impenitent and the unbelieving, and about the safety of true believers. He just spoke plainly. Today, we're going to be walking through a lot of, of passages, but it's really plain. It's really plain. You see, when John came on the scene, he came with a message, and we see it in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray a good night, right? He spoke plainly. There's not much more needed. He backs it up with some good scripture from the Old Testament to help the Jews who are there, to help them understand the setting, the context, what they're actually experiencing, which we'll get to in just a second. But if we look at what he's saying here, why does Christmas demand repentance? Well, look at what John is talking about, right? So he's talking about baptism. He's talking about baptism later here, right? They were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Well, in this particular case, look at John's baptism is given to Jews. Jews from all around came out into the desert to see this man, this spectacle. And this baptism was given to the Jews. It was supposed to be given to Gentiles. Baptism in this method is how Gentiles were brought into the fold of Judaism. Not for Jews. This was given to Jews, and it emphatically denotes that the Jewish heritage, the fact that they were Jews, could not save them. They were repenting of Jewishness, in a sense. Secondly, it's not self-administered. Why is that important? Well, when this Gentile proselyte would be brought into Judaism through that baptism, they would do the washing themselves. Here, John is doing the dunking. They don't dunk themselves. So if you were going to be fit for the kingdom, you could not make yourself so. If you wanted to enter into Judaism, you could do it. If you want to enter into this kingdom, you can't. You had to receive baptism at the hand of another. Third, John's baptism was eschatological, future-looking, right? Revelation-ish, looking that far. It looked for deliverance from the coming wrath. So John insists that repentance means, listen, submitting to the judgment of God either in reality, the coming wrath, or else in symbol, by repentance and entering into the river. Why do we do baptism as a church? Well, for us, it's a symbol that wrath is being washed away now. Lest, if we were not baptized, we would receive wrath in full in the future. And so the river here is a picture of judgment and mercy flowing from God's throne and bringing forgiveness of sins and life in Messiah's kingdom. This new kingdom, you can join, repent, be baptized, and experience mercy and forgiveness. You see, 
As we look through the passage, you see the introduction of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. And he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Your pedigree is not special. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had pedigree to spare. They had plenty of orthodoxy to back themselves up. To be Abraham's seed is not enough. If there is no heartfelt repentance, there will be no spiritual life for you in the kingdom of the Messiah. If it is worldly grief, it leads to death. If it is godly grief, it leads to life. The message that we see here is not out of place in our contemporary churches because we are too prone in our culture and maybe even here to regard baptism and church going as sufficient pledges for eternal security, whether or not there is in the lives of our people or in our culture any fruit in keeping with repentance. The key piece here is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How is this a Christmas message? What's the instigating factor that brought about John's ministry and then the words that he said? The birth of Jesus. That means Christmas. The fact that Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, has arrived on the scene means it's a new page in the story of history. And it kicks John off into this ministry and the words that he received, as we're going to see again in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, the word of God came to John. This is not John's opinions. This is God's words. Kick off this message. And he doesn't just stop here. He keeps going. <laughs> Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Guys, if you have ever cut down a tree or seen one cut down, you don't start at the roots. Unless it's a small one, you just pull it out. A real tree that you're cutting down you start from the top and you work your way down. If you want to get kind of crazy, you just cut it off at the trunk at the bottom and see what happens, which we've done a few times. Um, you don't start at the root. But this axe is removing the source of these trees. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not what bear good fruit, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. So humble is John that he uses the phrase of only a servant could do this. Actual Jews were not allowed to remove the sandals. Only slaves could. And he's saying, no, I, I, I'm not even worthy to carry them. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 12, this should be similar language to what you're used to from Ruth. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn with the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A winnowing fan in his hand. If you remember from the threshing floor of, of Ruth, right? It's up on a mountain, not in a wine pit like Gideon did because he was a coward, but up in, a, in a, ri a risen place where the wind will come through. You smash up the grain like riding a sled and it just smashes up the grain. And then you take a winnowing fork and you pick it up and you throw it in the air 
The chaff is light, it flies away, the grain falls to the ground, you collect the grain. Jesus is doing that. His winnowing fan is already in his hand. Listen, there's two steps to that threshing floor. After it's smashed, you have a shovel, which is where you do the bulk of the work. But then when it gets to the fine stuff, you change to the fan. It means it's imminent. It's not on step one. It's not on step two. It's the last opportunity because he's cleaning up. His winnowing fan is in his hand. You see, in the former verse, John preached concerning the grace of Christ, right? The Jews might yield themselves to him to be renewed, but now he discourses of judgment that he may, I like this language that he uses, strike despisers with terror. It is imminent danger. And then there's a word that we have not used very much here, and it's a word that is typically used against us by the culture, but I think it's one that should enter back into the language of the church. The commentator says this, as there are always many hypocrites who proudly reject the grace of Christ offered to them, it is also necessary to announce the judgment that awaits them. And so for this reason, John here describes Christ as a severe judge against unbelievers. And this is an order which must be observed by us in the church and teaching that hypocrites may know that their rejection of Christ will not go unpunished. And the goal here is that they'll be roused from their lethargy, from their sleeping, and begin to dread Him as an avenger whom they despised as the author of salvation. The hypocrite is the one who says that he follows Christ, but despises His grace and earns his own righteousness on his own. You will not make it. It's not enough to be Abraham's seed. He can turn rocks into Abraham's seed. You who thought that it was so special. You should be afraid. He is the avenger. His winnowing fan is in his hand. It's coming. J.C. Ryle says this, This again is a teaching which is deeply important. We need to be straightly warned that it's no light matter whether we repent or not. We need to be reminded that there is a hell as well as a heaven and an everlasting punishment for the wicked as well as an everlasting life for the godly. And we are fearfully apt to forget this. We talk of the love and mercy of God and we do not remember sufficiently his justness and holiness. Let us be very careful on this point. It is no real kindness to keep back the terrors of the Lord. It is good for us all to be taught that it is possible to be lost forever and that all unconverted people are hanging over the brink of the pit. That's the Christmas message. Christmas demands repentance. You see, everything that John had said about the Messiah he received from God. Luke 3, 2, the word of God came to John. And so when John proclaimed the Messiah, it wasn't his opinion, it was revelation. John was declaring the Messiah and he was saying certain things about the Messiah. What was he saying? That he was going to be a judge. He, when he came, that terrible things would, would happen. And this was his message. John said that there was, was coming a Messiah and he would be a terrifying judge. And in Matthew 3, 7, he said the same thing. And in verse 10, he says, The axe is laid to the root. What doesn't produce fruit will go into the fire. His fan is in hand, forbidding, judgmental, damning. That's the Messiah that John anticipated. That's his expectation. 
And rightly so. You see, John is the first prophet in over 400 years. 400 years. Again, slow down (laughs) and think about that. 400 years God has been silent. The Israelites were in exile. They come back. They rebuild. Nehemiah, Ezra, you're familiar with that. Some minor prophets, particularly Malachi. And nothing. And they experienced the Romans. Nothing. Silence. 400 years. How long has America been around? Less. 400 years he's been silent. And who shows up on the scene for the first time as a prophet of the Almighty God? John. And what does he say? Exactly what Malachi said. Malachi chapter 4, 1-6 through six, should be up here. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the end of the Old Testament. 400 years of silence. And who shows up? Elijah. John is Elijah. That's why he's wearing the goofy clothes. That's why he's in the desert. Not because he wanted to. Because that's what the Scripture said he would do. He is Elijah. Elijah wore those very clothes. God is speaking again now, 400 years later. And what does he say? What does God have to say after 400 years of silence? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christmas demands repentance. And Jesus himself follows suit, lest we get too hyped up on John. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 through 39, this, this baby who the angel said, peace is coming, right? Says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What happens for us then? I think the thing that takes this (laughs) terrifying, wrathful, damning judge and puts it in a place where we can actually understand it is 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 13-17 Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, not your pedigree, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And there it is. There's the charge, right? It was implicit before, it's explicit now. Holiness. Holiness. Why repent? Why does Christmas demand repentance? Because holiness is demanded. Christmas demands repentance because holiness is at stake. There can be no peace because man and God are at odds. There's been no mediator. God is holy. We are not. Repent. See, it's a terrifying picture if you you stop early. It's a terrifying picture if you hear the whole message and don't respond rightly. Repent. Because holiness is demanded. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Why? Because it's written in the Old Testament, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, this is for the people that Call him Father, okay? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, our culture just absolutely dismisses holiness. A.W. Pink wrote a fantastic book that we use kind of on the periphery in our church for different things called The Attributes of God, and it walks through them. It's something that you'll probably be seeing more of, particularly as house gatherings progress. But he has a chapter on holiness, and he says, Our culture dismisses holiness. Their conception of his character is altogether one-sided. They miss the manifold picture of who he is. See, holiness of God is really the summation of all of his attributes. And he is perfect in each of them. He is holy. He goes on to say that they fondly hope that his mercy will override everything else. And that they fall guilty of Psalm 50, 21-23. These things you have, this is God talking to to the people. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. You thought that I was like you. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. But our culture thinks that God is like them. How often do you hear, I just can't see God punishing me for that. I do everything that I can, and how how can he be good if he would punish me for these things that I've done well? Because he is just like me. God is holy. And so church, 
It was implicit before. It's explicit now. Do you pursue holiness? Do you pursue holiness? Is it your aim? Is it your desire? Is it what helps wake you up to the fact that you're still in the fight? John knew this. This was his expectation. And so church, when you come here and gather together, do you expect to be called to holiness? When we look at 1 Peter again with that in mind, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You see, the fact that Peter could give such a command implies that he knew that there are still desires within us that remain and have really some power in the hearts of even true Christians. But he also implies that he agrees with Paul in Romans 6, 11 and 14, in Galatians 5, 24, that the Holy Spirit's regenerating work has broken the ruling, the dominating force of those desires, and that it is possible for Christians to have a significant measure of victory over them. You see, when I get into the fog of sin, the thing that calls me out of that, my conscience, the Holy Spirit, is holiness. I am not being holy. I'm not accurately reflecting my Savior. I am not being holy. And so I get pulled out of that fog of desire and recognize that I'm in a fight. And I war for my soul. The mortification of sin, the putting to death of sin. It's a fight. You see, when you come here on Sundays and regularly listen to the not funny guy, it's work. It's work. I promise you, we do our very darn best to make this sermon as tasty as possible, all right? To make it as palatable, to, to make sure that it connects, that it's entertaining in some fashion, that, that you can track with us. But don't mistake that for the fact that this is work. What you're doing right now is work. I recognize that. That's why there's coffee. It's hard. Sitting down to read your Bible is hard. Going to house gathering is hard. Exposing yourself is hard. Caring about what other people say is hard. We're at war. We're fighting for holiness. You see, our desires pull us away into selfishness. Pull us out of house gathering. Pull us out of Sunday worship. Pull us out of serving each other. Pull us out of wanting to listen to what's going on in other people's lives. Pull us out of actually engaging our Bibles. Pull us out of applying something from it. Instead, we react to life. Something's coming, oh, we've got to deal with it. Something else is coming, oh, we've got to deal with it. We don't make plans to walk in the steps that God has prepared for us to do. And we miss the gravity of what's going on and the fact that day by day, we are to be holy in all of our conduct. This pattern of life that transforms every day, every moment, every thought, and every action. It seems unreachable because we're so far gone. But repeatedly in the Scriptures, we're told to take every thought 
captive. We're told to make every desire obedient to the Scriptures. Scripture is concerned about the minutiae of life. And it's overwhelming for us because we're just caught up responding. So how do we get off of that? How do we start <clears throat> pursuing? How do we stop just responding? Well, we first have to understand really what this holiness is. And to be holy as God is holy includes a full and pervading holiness that reaches to every aspect of our personalities. It involves not only avoiding outward sin, but also, listen, and here's the key. This is why, this is why we get lost. We, I'm, I'm in this fight with you. Maintaining an instinctive delight in God and His holiness as an undercurrent of heart and mind throughout the day. Worship. Worship. We, we have to, in every moment, every day, delight in God. Why does that seem so far out of reach? Because it's worship. We worship everything else. Why DNA is so, so important for us to really wrestle with those chapters on idolatry. To really begin to understand what our G's are, our four G's. God is good, God is gracious, God is glorious. Good gracious, great glorious. Oh, that's how I remember it. <laughs> we need those. We need to live by them because it's an issue of worship. It's an issue of worship. We're pointed at everything else, and so we don't have instinctive delight in God. We don't have this undercurrent of worship of God, not other things, of God in our heart and our mind throughout the day. And so it's no wonder that when it's not in our head and our heart that it doesn't come out in our hands. Instead, we respond to everything rather than walk in the character of God. And so we must see that when it comes to the very basics of life, for our culture and interacting with them to our kids, because often their reasoning is on the same level, <laughs> whatever it may be, that when it comes to God's moral, moral character, who He is, His holiness, our imitation for Him is the basics, the basis for everything that is good and bad. The final reason... <laughs> At the end of the day, no matter what anyone wants to, to argue with you or whatever your kids may want to reason with you, the final reason why some things are right and other things are wrong and why there are moral absolutes in the universe is that God delights in things that reflect His moral character. And it reflects His excellence. If it reflects God's character, it's holiness. And He is those things perfectly it reflects his moral character and his excellence. And he hates, he hates what is contrary to his character. And so we are to imitate him. Ephesians 5.1, Matthew 5.48, Luke 6.36, Colossians 3.9-10, 1 John 3.2-3 and 4.11 and 19. Ephesians 5, 2, 1 Peter 2, 21, 1 John 2, 6. Imitate Him. Be holy because He's holy and thereby glorify Him. Worship Him. You have to know His character and you have to delight in it yourself. The church can help you, but it cannot do it for you.
That's a lot. It's interesting, is right after our passage here, Jesus shows up on the scene. And you know what he did? Mostly deeds of mercy. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and voices to the dumb and life to the dead. And John didn't understand it. Because John didn't understand that that was also part of the prophecy. Or he had forgotten. And so he sends disciples from his prison to inquire of Jesus. Everything that we've talked about has been John's expectation. And Jesus doesn't do that. He was taken prisoner. John, taken prisoner by King Herod. It's the most bleak and desolate place imaginable. It was a uh, fortress of Herod, and John is sitting there a prisoner, right? He's there, and it doesn't seem to be going like he had expected. Because Messiah was to come and was to judge and set up his kingdom. There wasn't any judgment and there wasn't any kingdom. And so when John had heard in the prison of the works of Christ, he sends two of his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the one that was, was to come? <laughs> or are we supposed to look for another? You're not who we think you're supposed to be. You see, when John heard the things that Jesus said, he, was, he just couldn't justify what Jesus was doing with what he had said that Jesus would do. And John was trapped in the paradox of prophecy. He was confused. His faith was growing thin. He failed to see how the resolution of such a conflict existed. And so we, are, I think, are trapped too in this paradox of Christmas. This is the baby that instigates this call to repentance and this holiness that is demanded and necessary. But at the same time, we have this king who is not judged or set up his kingdom or done the things that he said he would. They are both true and fit together. But how? And it's interesting what Jesus says to him. What does he say? He says, go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf heard. The dead were raised up. The poor had the gospel preached to them. And then why did he do that? Why didn't he give John some more specific answer? Why didn't he say, no, no, it's me. Just chill, all right? Or why didn't he, he, why, didn't he, why did he do that? Why does he say, look at what I've done? Why does he say that? Because he gives him a pretty specific answer. And the words that he uses in verse 5 of this passage he, are really a paraphrase of, of three different verses from Isaiah. 35.5, 35.6, and Isaiah 61.1. He's saying this. He says, you go back and you remind John of some other prophecies that I have to fulfill first. The problem John had was the problem that all the Old Testament prophets had. They didn't see any distinction between the first coming and the second coming. And so he says to the messengers, you tell him to hang in there. I've got some other things to do that are also recorded prophetically. And the very words that he gave were almost right out of Isaiah. Verse 6 is a gentle rebuke. It says this, Blessed is he who is not offended by me or shall not stumble because of what I am doing. 
John was offended and John was stumbling. And Jesus gently rebukes him and says, see what's happening. Don't be offended by what I'm doing. The prophet that you're pulling from, same guy. Don't be offended by what I'm doing. Don't stumble over what I'm doing. Blessed is the man who trusts me. All right, hang tight. You haven't seen it all yet. The best is yet to come. Trust me. And so how do we reconcile this? What does it mean for us to take holiness and fit it with something that we can't actually attain and something that Jesus seems to be very much about because everything that we have already talked about is certainly true, but has not yet come to pass? What does that mean for us and how do we bring these two things together? Well, we, we ended in First Peter a little early. First Peter in verse 18 and 19, chapter 1, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, we are called to holiness and we can't do it. And if it were up to us, we would be burned up off of the threshing floor. But we don't have to be holy in and of ourselves because we were bought with the precious blood of Christ. You see, this was news to some of you a few weeks ago. I was, I was very encouraged after the last time I preached and some of you told me that you've not heard this before. Church, you are blood-bought sons and daughters if you believe in Jesus. That's who you are. You are sons and daughters of the King. You were ransomed so to continue our journey today for those who are ransomed with precious blood holiness is at stake for those who are ransomed with precious blood you see we cannot achieve holiness on our own now listen the problem is we say i know that's why i've got jesus and we go on and do what we want to do that's not the call call is to be holy and even when you can't you imitate him pursue holiness make it your very aim put sin to death do not sin more that grace might increase it's not how it works when john says bear fruit in keeping with repentance it's not fruits it's fruit why is it fruit because you can't do enough he very intentionally uses the singular fruit of repentance. Those who do not bear good fruit will be thrown into the fire. You see, we pursue holiness. And so when we have people in our church or when we have ourselves that come to the cross and we say, Father, forgive me, I repent of my sins. And we turn around and do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, we are liars. And Scripture is very clear, particularly I believe this one is in red in case it matters, that when we lie, we are like our father, the devil. And we will be consumed by the same fire that he's going to be consumed by. And so we must walk in keeping with our repentance. And so Christmas demands repentance because holiness is at stake for those who are ransomed with precious blood. Can I show you guys something cool to bring us home on this? I, I, this is... 
I like this. This made me really enjoy studying this week, all right? When you think about Christmas and you, you think about a baby, right? Drop that for a minute, all right? Think about a rock, all right? Rock of ages, right? Think about a rock, a stone, really, a rock. Nothing could be further to the opposite end of things than a baby, right? But think of it this way, because the Old Testament presents the coming Messiah as a stone, as a rock. Interestingly enough, in Isaiah, you have two views of the stone, all right? We've been in Isaiah a little bit here. Uh, this should be on the screen. Isaiah 8 14, it says, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now, here's the coming Messiah, the baby. He's going to be a stumbling stone and the rock of offense. It's not a very inviting picture. Later on, Isaiah says this in 28.16, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. This is the same author. Isaiah has got to be scratching his head saying, I don't understand, God. He's a, a stumbling stone. He's the rock of offense. And now all of a sudden he's precious? How could a stumbling stone and a rock of offense be a precious cornerstone? And Psalm 118.22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner, the cornerstone. And so there you have this idea of this cornerstone. How could one person be a stumbling stone, rock of offense, a cornerstone, a precious stone, a tested stone, a sure foundation? And then on top of all that, we have Daniel, right? Who, just to make it difficult, calls Jesus a smiting stone. He's the stone that comes and destroys the statue. How could one be all of those things? Yet Jesus was. Listen to Peter again as he quotes Isaiah 8, 28, Psalm 118, the three that we just read. He quotes them all in one passage, right? 1 Peter 1, 25-210 is the continuation of our passage. This is the word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, so because of this, because you have been called to be holy and because you have been ransomed by the precious blood, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a what? Living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and what? Precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for it stands in scripture and whoever believes in him I'm sorry for it stands in scripture behold I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Christmas demands repentance because holiness is at stake. For those who are ransomed with precious blood and have received mercy. Peter says, yes, he's all of these stones. He's all of these stones. The difference is this, he's precious to you who believe. He is offensive to you who do not. Listen. We must be holy because he is holy. And so we have to repent and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's a lot of the legalism, the not fun part, right? Where's the grace? The grace is that you have been ransomed. That you are being fashioned into the image of Christ. That you yourselves have become living stones. You are of the same likeness that Jesus is. And you're being fashioned together with Him. We're a chosen race. The race that matters, the one after the new Adam. Not the one of Abraham. We're a royal priesthood. A holy nation of people for His own possession. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of Him. The excellencies? Holiness, right? Holiness of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We've received mercy. John MacArthur says in his classic old man fashion, Christmas is not a good place to play tokenism with God. The birth of Christ was either the most glorious event of the world, or it is the damnation of a man's life and his destiny. You don't play around with the birth of Christ. You can celebrate it with joy only if you believe and that that stone is precious to you. Because if you do not, Christ is a stumbling stone. He's a rock of offense. And so that is for us Christmas. What's your expectation of that baby? Because that's Jesus Christ. He is deadly or he is precious. But tokenism in the middle is a disaster. The rock of offense, the word pictures a huge rock bed against which men just leap off of cliffs and smash themselves to pieces. And that's who Jesus is to those who do not believe. They destroy themselves upon him. So what is this Christ to you this Christmas? Is he precious? Is he the cornerstone on which you build your Life Is He a sure foundation? The world who wants to fashion God after themselves and plead His mercy over and against His justness and His holiness does not give them mercy. But to those that believe in Him and respect His holiness, He does indeed give mercy. Is he a stumbling stone, a rock of offense set to ensnare and trap you? Listen, don't let Satan hustle you into believing that you can pay tokenistic homage to God and to Jesus at church, at Christmas, at Easter. 
in your daily living and actions, he is either to you precious or he's a smiting, crushing stone. If he's precious, pursue holiness. (laughs) Knowing that you were set apart, sanctified, and ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we were lost in our desires, lost in our ignorance, lost in our sin. Father, were it not for you coming, were it not for you giving us your word, were it not for you revealing yourself as you choose to reveal yourself, Father, we would still be lost. Father, as a Gentile who is not even of Abraham's seed, Father, we are grateful and thankful that that doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. We are part of a new race, a new and better Adam. So, Father, this month, help it be different. Help it be different in the fact that maybe for the first time we realize that we're not just trying to make it to the end. <laughs> yes, there, we've talked the past couple of weeks about the great hope that is to come. But Father, we're not just trying to make it there. You have plans and purposes for us here and now to fashion us into the likeness of Your Son. You are setting us apart. You are sanctifying us daily for holy use. To know You and Your excellencies better And Father, to even become like them ourselves. Because we have been made holy in Jesus Christ. Father, we miss the weightiness of that every day. Forgive us. Help us see you in your majesty. And for those that count the blood of Jesus as precious, let us celebrate this month in a way that we never have because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.